0: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to learn better relationships, how to make sense of research reports in the media about mental health treatments that may be coming down the road, and new insights into the causes of mental illness. All that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to reduce the stigma ...of having a mental health diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome to this program recorded for airing on Wednesday, March the 2nd, 2016. Uh, If you heard that clap of thunder in the intro, then that gives you a very broad hint of when I recorded this. But in any case, um, maybe one of the things that is affecting your mental health, or something that's on your mind in any case, is the results of the Super Tuesday primaries, which uh, took place on Tuesday the first, as you well know, including Georgia and many, many other states. Um, <clears throat> I found a study talking about how people find like minded others. And although the study had nothing to do with politics, uh, it seemed to me that it may give us some insights into how the country has become so polarized in the sense that political discourse uh, has become quite uh, vitriolic and there seems to be less and less middle ground that the two opposing parties can find. And uh, less and less opportunity for cooperation. Uh, this seems to become increasingly more difficult over recent decades. And I admit it seems a bit of a reach to take something that social psychologists were looking at for just interpersonal relationships and extrapolating that to uh, <clears throat> politics and uh, different points of view about issues. Uh, But nonetheless, I could not help but see those connections there at this time of year when we're in the throes of a presidential primary season that has commanded so much attention uh, for its strident uh, points of view and uh, uh, opponents going at each other uh, very, very vehemently on both sides of the aisle. So without further ado then, uh, let's... Let's start with that. This study finds that our desire for like-minded others is hardwired. wired um, <clears throat> Efforts to get partners to change could be futile, even detrimental. Uh, now, this path-breaking new study on how we seek similarity in relationships was done by researchers at Wellesley College, and the University of Kansas. And the study upends the idea that opposites attract, instead suggesting that we're drawn to people who are like-minded. The study could lead to a fundamental change in understanding relationship formation, and it sounds like a warning for the idea that couples can change each other over time. The investigation's findings are presented in a paper called Similarity in Relationships as Niche Construction, Choice, Stability, and Influence Within Dyads in a Free Choice Environment, in the current issue of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. In what might be considered a paradigm shift, the study's most surprising discovery is that people in relationships do not change each other over time. Instead, evidence places new emphasis on the earliest moments of a relationship, revealing that future friends or partners are already similar at the outset of their social connection, which the authors say is a major new finding. Picture two strangers striking up a conversation on a plane, or a couple on a blind date. From the very first moments of awkward banter, how similar the two people are is immediately and powerfully playing a role in future interactions. Will they connect or walk away? Those early recognitions of similarity are really consequential in that decision. Whether or not a relationship develops could depend on the level of similarity the two individuals share from the beginning of their meeting. You try to create a social world where you're comfortable, where you succeed, where you have people you can trust and with whom you can cooperate to meet your goals. To create this, similarity is very useful and people are attracted to it most of the time. Though the idea that partners influence each other is central in relationships research, they have identified a large domain in which friends show very little change. Personality, attitudes, and values, and a selection of socially relevant behaviors. To be clear, they do not mean to suggest that social influence doesn't happen in relationships. However, there's little room for influence to occur when partners are similar at the outset of relationships. The data also suggests our drive to select like-minded others may be far stronger than previously assumed. Selecting similar others as relationship partners is extremely common, so common and so widespread on so many dimensions that it could be described as a psychological default. Research shows people are not seeking shared similarity on one or two particular topics. People are more similar than chance on almost everything measured, and they are especially similar on the things that matter most to them personally. And again, I'll just mention, while the study is merely talking about relationships and uh, couples in particular, uh, this, to me, I think is also applicable to how people with similar political points of view seem to uh, find each other and uh, gather with each other. Now, the study has implications for how we grasp the foundations of relationships and approach relationships when the partners are different. Its findings were derived from real-world relationships. The data came from a field research method dubbed free-range dyad harvesting. I love the jargon the social psychologists come up with, don't you? In which pairs of people interacting in public, whether they be romantic couples or just friends or acquaintances, were asked questions about attitudes, values, prejudices, personality traits, or behaviors that are important to them. The data were compared to see how similar or different the pairs were and to test whether pairs who had known each other longer and whose relationships were closer and more intimate, were more similar than newly formed pairs. They were not. Additionally, the researchers surveyed pairs who had just met in a college classroom setting, and then surveyed the same pairs later. This allowed the benefit of longitudinal data. And painting a picture of the same pairs over an extended period of time. In a smaller study that led up to this one, they looked at students at Kansas University, a big state university, and several smaller colleges in western and central Kansas. At the large university, people found people who were more similar to themselves than at small colleges, where there just aren't as many choices in friends. At small colleges, friends were less similar, but just as close and satisfied, and spent the same amount of time together. We know that people pick similar people at first, but if you go out of your way, you can find excellent friends and meaningful relationships with people who are different. Such dissimilar friends didn't necessarily blend their points of view over time, the study showed. Anything that disrupts the harmony of the relationship, such as areas of disagreement, especially on attitudes, values, or preferences that are important, is likely to persist. This could be a cautionary message for those who think they can change their friends or romantic partners. This is a very important lesson for people who have made mistakes in their relationships. And I'm sure you yourself who are listening may have made this mistake one or more time, or you know people who did. They'll say to themselves, well, I know that, you know, my partner has this and that wrong with them, but I can change them. No, you can't. You can't change them. So don't ignore those red flags because you're not going to be able to change the person. Either accept them for who they are or if the thing you don't like about them is a deal breaker, as painful as it might be, it's best to move on because that's better than the pain of putting up with things that you're not able to change. Change is difficult and unlikely it's easier to select people who are compatible with your needs and goals from the beginning. The researcher said the quest and similarity from friends could result in a lack of exposure to other ideas, values, and perspectives. <clears throat> and that spoke to me, uh, to the polarization politically that we're seeing and that this presidential primary that we're going through is laying bare uh, for all the world to see, not just the United States. Let's stop, take a commercial break. We'll have more on this subject and others when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
1: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out of pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
2: This is Daryl Pulis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
3: You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all the mental health-related news, and we're talking about A study showing that in our relationships, we look for like-minded others. And in my opinion, that extends to our politics, as we've just gone through Super Tuesday. Now, according to the researchers, getting along with people who aren't like you is really useful. Friends are for comfort, taking it easy, relaxing, not being challenged. And those are good things. But you can't have only that need. You also need new ideas. People to correct you when you may be a little off. Hmm, You think that applies to some of the politicians we've been hearing from lately? And if you hang out only with people who are somewhat a little off like you, you can be out of touch with the big, beautiful, diverse world. Again, Sound familiar when you see some of the discourse on the news? The drive towards similarity presents the drawback of limited exposure to different ideas and beliefs, along with rewards like stability of identity, value systems, and ideology. And that right there sums up how this research about dyads, relationships between romantic partners or friends or acquaintances is very applicable to the uh, polarization of political discourse. The authors provide convincing data that friendships are driven more by pre-existing similarity between friends rather than friends becoming more similar over time due to influencing each other. Remember, folks, you can't change that person that you see major flaws and red flags, but you somehow gloss over because you think you can change them, you can't. The research offers one of the most definitive accounts showing that not only do birds of a feather flock together, but goes one step further to show that birds of a feather find each other before flocking. Now, to be fair, is this always applicable to what I'm talking about in terms of uh, political discourse? Of course not. Uh, we all know uh, couples, be they married or otherwise, who were directly opposite. One spouse, staunch Republican, the other one, staunch Democrat, so on and so forth. But I do think, without realizing it, the release of this paper uh, right smack in the middle of the presidential primary season is very timely, and it does give us some insights into uh, how people tend to seek out like-minded others, even at the expense of being able to be open to uh, the ideas and opinions of others who are not like them. That is my point in bringing this up at this time. All right. Well, hopefully you weren't too stressed about the results in your state, wherever you were, uh, or if it turned out the way you want, hopefully you don't get too exuberant either. After all, you never know what's going to happen down the road. In any case, next up on psychiatry today. This is uh, another hot-button political issue. It has to do with our Second Amendment rights. Only this time... Uh, I'm not going to be talking to you about how having a mental illness could affect your uh, being able to exercise your Second Amendment rights. I'm also not talking about how the mentally ill sometimes rarely commit acts of violence with firearms. Remember, the mentally ill are, statistically anyway, far more likely to be the victims of gun violence than to commit it. No, instead, this is an article about a law in Florida that is intended to muzzle, pun intended, doctors' speech with their patients about guns. Uh, If you haven't heard about this, uh, it will become clearer as I go through this article. Articles called Battle Rages Over Florida Law Limiting Doctors Gun Speech. As a pediatrician, Dr. Judith Schachter can ask patient parents, can ask parents of her patients all sorts of questions regarding their safety and well-being. What their child eats, whether there's a pool in their backyard, whether their child gets enough sleep, yet the question of whether they have a gun in their home is generally off-limits. A Florida law bans routine gun questions, even though eight children or teenagers are killed every day in the United States with guns, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta eight children or teenagers every day killed by guns. Uh, Dr. Schachter says a doctor has to be able to ask. She believes a discussion about guns is essential to child safety. Dr. Schachter is chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. She says, we do this for so many issues. This is but one, yet it is an extremely important one, for when we don't discuss prevention, the results can be lethal. Schachter is among thousands of physicians, medical organizations, and other groups such as the American Civil Liberties Union that challenged the law Formerly called the Firearm Owners Privacy Act, in a lawsuit popularly known as Docs versus Glocks, the law passed in 2011 amid strong support from the National Rifle Association, is the only one of its kind in the country. Although similar laws have been considered in 12 other states, according to the American Academy. The legal battle, which has raged since the law's inception, is a clash between the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech and the Second Amendment's right to keep and bear arms amid a national discussion about the role and availability of weapons across the United States. The lawsuit is now pending before the Atlanta-based 11th United States Circuit Court of Appeals following conflicting earlier rulings on its constitutionality and the case could wind up in the United States Supreme Court. Supporters in the Republican-controlled Florida Legislature and the NRA say the law became necessary when, in their view, doctors began overstepping their bounds in the examination room by pushing an anti-Second Amendment, anti-gun political agenda. The NRA cites several examples of doctors telling patients they'd have to find a new physician if they refused to answer questions about gun ownership or telling parents they should get rid of any guns in the home. The law, supporters point out, permits doctors under a good-faith provision to ask about firearms if the questions are deemed relevant to the patient's medical care or safety or the safety of other people. These provisions target discrimination and harassment, not speech, and they do nothing to impair doctor-patient discussions of firearm safety, NRA attorney Charles Cooper said in court papers. Even if viewed as a speech regulation, the law is a reasonable regulation of speech incidental to the practice of medicine, he said. The law also has some teeth. Doctors who violate the law could face professional discipline, such as a fine, or even lose their medical licenses. The State Department of Health would investigate any complaints, although the law has never been enforced because it was blocked in 2012 by a Miami judge's decision that found it an unconstitutional violation of free speech rights. Since that decision by United States District Judge Marsha Cook the law has been entangled in an unusual web of appeals brought by Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, a Republican. The same panel of the three Eleventh Circuit appeals judges has overruled Cook on identical two-to-one votes, but in three separate opinions, each replacing the one before. Most recently, in December the panel found that any free speech concerns were outweighed by Florida's interest in preventing doctors from using their so-called power disparity over patients to chill exercise of their Second Amendment rights. In other words, the three-judge panel found that doctors had a First Amendment right to talk to patients about guns but couldn't use it most of the time, said attorney Doug Howard Dreimeyer, who represents the physicians and their allies. The law, he said, singles out doctor's speech about guns for restriction because the government disagrees with their message. That is precisely what the First Amendment protects us against. After that December opinion, The full 11th Circuit Court of Appeals stepped in to take up the case, tossing out decisions by its own three-judge panel. The court's 11 judges in coming months will likely hold oral arguments, followed by a decision that could be appealed again to the United States Supreme Court. Dr. Schachter, the pediatrician, said she views concerns about Second Amendment violations as misguided. With a nation of in guns, and the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service pegged the number of 310 million guns in 2009, it's simple common sense for a doctor to question patients about them. This isn't about the Second Amendment. It's about speaking up to save lives. Now, we'll take another commercial break and talk about why she feels that way and why i'm bringing this up and more you're listening to psychiatry today with dr scott
1: do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure do other people smell things that you don't have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps these are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT and Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon si- dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts.
3: Don't be hoodwinked by the left who
1: wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio.
3: the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Now, I'm talking to you about an article, um, basically an interview with a pediatrician in Florida, having to do with Florida's, law limiting doctor's gun speech. Again, the law is uh, on hold uh, because the judge uh, declared it an unfair restriction of our First Amendment uh, rights to free speech. Um, <clears throat> now again, uh, Dr. Schachter, the pediatrician, was explaining why she needs the right, in her opinion, to talk to her patient's parents. Again, she's a pediatrician about guns in their home. Uh, She says, it's my right and my patient's right to hear what I have to say. I trust if they don't want to answer my questions, they will tell me. So far, none of them have done so. All right. Well, a lot uh, to talk about here. First of all, this has to do with the pediatrician. Why am I discussing it? Well, uh, we in psychiatry also have to address the issue of whether a patient has access to guns because of suicide being the ultimate complication of mental illness <clears throat> and uh, a very sad way that we psychiatrists can lose a patient. And <clears throat> therefore, as distasteful as it might seem, it is necessary at times to ask patients and their families about this issue. Now, I'll go into more depth in that in a moment, but just to finish, uh, our thoughts about the article is as long as a doctor is being fair and even handed about this and saying, look, I just want to make sure you're aware of gun safety issues and how having unsecured guns in the home can be very dangerous to children, uh, encourage proper gun safety when there are children in the house. You know, that's the only reason for bringing up the issue. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. It has not anything to do with threatening anyone's Second Amendment rights or... Uh, inappropriately promoting an anti-gun agenda it's plain and simple a safety issue a uh, and, and that i think is a legitimate medical concern i think the florida law crosses the line uh that is certainly speech protected under the first amendment now let's assume the worst case and that a doctor is very inappropriately and unprofessionally criticizing someone for owning guns in their home and properly exercising their uh, Second Amendment rights. You know, that's objectionable speech, to be sure, but it's free speech nonetheless, and as distasteful as that might seem, still uh, the doctor has the right to say what they want, and it is then incumbent upon the patient, or in the case of this pediatric practice, the patient's parents to say, you know what, that's unprofessional, that's inappropriate, that has no place in the context of a medical visit. Uh, I object to it personally. Those statements don't fit with my values, and I'm going to find another pediatrician for my kid. And I think that would be an appropriate response. But free speech is why we have a free country. And, uh, as long as someone isn't using their first amendment rights, uh, to commit outright harm, it is a bit much, uh, to, to say doctors can't, uh, talk about guns during medical visits. Uh, so really, uh, you know, it's really, I think, I think two issues here. It's being able to raise a legitimate medical issue where it concerns uh, patient safety uh, and, and not having anything to do with criticizing someone's Second Amendment right to own guns uh, versus uh, perhaps hopefully, I think, a, a small minority of doctors who might go over the line and uh, take that discussion farther than it should. Now, let me get back to how this is a very important, delicate issue in psychiatry. In psychiatry, if we have a patient who is suicidal or who may be suicidal, of course it is our mission to keep that person alive uh, using every means possible. And so, yes, we will ask the patient, their family members, their spouse, You know, are there guns in the home? Does the patient have access to firearms? And it is not about saying anything about their Second Amendment rights, threatening to take them away. It's about maintaining their safety. And I have asked this question in order to do anything and everything that I could to prevent someone from committing suicide, because research shows if there are lethal means readily available to a patient who is feeling that way, it is more likely they are going to take their life than if you somehow insulate them from the uh, ease of access of lethal means until they can recover sufficiently to where the thoughts of wanting to die subside. Uh, So this would entail something like asking a spouse or a family member to please either secure the guns uh, or have them at least temporarily removed from the home with a close friend or a close relative until such time as the patient's condition improves so that they are no longer a danger to themselves. Okay, so it's about maintaining patient safety uh, it is not about infringing on second amendment rights and uh, I strongly object to any state trying to take away doctors ability to freely ask questions that directly result uh, relate to the health of their patient uh, this just is not workable and uh, Frankly, I would be shocked uh, that uh, this case might be overturned, and uh, I strongly doubt that it will be, uh, again, because um, exercising free speech does not in any way, shape, or form infringe uh, upon someone's Second Amendment rights. And uh, I also want to state very clearly that I would be the first person uh, to tell you that if any of my colleagues in any specialty were to take the discussion beyond uh, simply ensuring patient safety into uh, a discussion uh, about the Second Amendment and what it means or whether should people own guns or not, then I uh, strongly feel that's inappropriate, unprofessional, beyond the bounds of medical practice, and I would support that patient Saying, you know what, you know, I'm going to find a doctor who will not criticize me, criticize me for having the values that I have, and simply lawfully exercising my Second Amendment rights. So there you have that. Um, <clears throat> seems like we've been very political on tonight's podcast. Uh, let's try to find a subject that goes a little bit away from that, but. Um, But I do have a mental health and the military update for you. You know, that's also a a subject near and dear to my heart. I think that not enough attention has been paid to the mental health of our veterans and our military. So here's some good news for a change. Unfortunately, you're used to hearing me say uh, bad news about those situations. But... Uh, Apparently, a recent study found areas of excellence, but also improvement needed in the quality of mental health care in the United States military. Uh, The care provided by the U.S. military health care system to service members suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and depression is good in some areas, but needs improvement in other realms. This according to a new RAND Corporation study. In particular, the military mental health system performs well in following up with patients after they are discharged from a mental health hospitalization. The period after a patient is discharged can be a vulnerable time, making follow-up visits critically important for these patients, according to researchers. The RAND study also found that the vast majority of patients with a diagnosis of PTSD or depression received at least one psychotherapy visit. This suggests that military patients who receive a diagnosis of PTSD or depression have access to at least some mental health care, and this represents an improvement over previous research, folks, as as thin as that sounds, uh, it it indicates improvement. Regardless of where they serve, where they live, or who they are, all members of the United States Armed Forces should receive high-quality mental health care, developing transparent assessments of care that can be routinely reviewed both internally and externally, are essential to ensuring excellent care for all service members and their families. The study found that there was a need for improvement in some areas of care for PTSD and depression. Although most patients received at least one psychotherapy visit, the number and timing of subsequent visits may be inadequate to deliver evidence-based psychotherapy. In particular, patients newly diagnosed with either PTSD or depression should receive at least four psychotherapy or two medication management visits within eight weeks of their diagnosis. Only one-third of patients newly diagnosed with PTSD and under a quarter of those with depression met these established thresholds. The findings are among the first results from the RAND study that is the largest, most comprehensive independent look at how the United States military health system treats service members with PTSD and depression. So, in fact, the larger message is that it's being studied. We'll take a commercial break and come back with more details about that afterwards. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
1: It's that time of year again. If you suffer from itchy eyes, sneezing, a constant runny nose, sinus headaches, or an increase in asthma symptoms, and you're tired of using allergy medicine, maybe it's time to stop putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Peachtree ENT Center believes in treating the problem instead of masking the symptom. We are pleased to offer an innovative alternative that can free you from this routine. Sublingual immunotherapy is a safe, easy, and effective way to treat allergies to food and environmental allergens for you and your family. Imagine placing drops under your tongue to treat allergies. No shots, no office visits with time off from work, and freedom from needing daily allergy medication. Just think next year you can actually enjoy being outdoors. About an hour of your time is all it takes to change the quality of your life. Remember, Peace Street ENT Center is where patient care counts.
2: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
3: You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And right now, that's about an update on military mental health, which is improving but still uh, has room for further improvement. Uh, The study we're talking about reviewed administrative data and medical records of almost 15,000 active-duty service members diagnosed with PTSD and over 30,000 who were diagnosed with depression from January of 2012 to June of 2012, the review examined whether those service members were receiving evidence-based care in the year after diagnosis. The study also examined variations in quality measure rates by service branch, Army, Air Force, Marine Corps, and Navy, and the TRICARE region, which is the north, south, the west, and overseas, as well as across service member characteristics. TRICARE, if you're not familiar with it, is a health care program of the military health system. While the study found variation in the quality of care provided for PTSD and depression, no military branch or region consistently outperformed or underperformed relative to the others. Researchers also found no consistent patterns or variation in the quality of care by patient characteristics, such as their age, gender, pay grade, race, ethnicity, or deployment history. The study recommends that the Department of Defense investigate the reasons for the significant variation in quality measure rates to ensure consistent, high-quality care. The strategy to improve care should be based around quality measures that can be routinely assessed across the military health system, with the results shared broadly both internally and among military members who use the system. Uh, So this was published in Science Daily and it's from the RAND Corporation It's called Areas of Excellence Found, Also Improvement Needed in Quality of Mental Health Care in the United States Military. Um, And again, I think just to emphasize, like I was saying right before the commercial break, big picture-wise, the details of the study perhaps are just very uh, dry and very uninteresting except to the people who, uh, the information was commissioned for, but the main take home message, big picture message is finally, thankfully, uh, much, much more attention is being paid to the mental health of our, uh, active duty servicemen and studies like this, you know, weren't being done, uh, years ago and, uh, the ones that were done A few years ago uh, showed worse results so things are getting better and that's the good news let's hope that continues next up on psychiatry today something that can affect the health of the brain in a very very negative way and that's sleep apnea sleep apnea is a sleep disorder and if someone suffers from it and doesn't have it adequately treated, uh, it can definitely take its toll on brain function, and that's what uh, this article is about. And Recently we saw the passing of <clears throat> revered Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, and uh, there was one article that mentioned he was found in his bed in his uh, room in a resort in Texas with his CPAP machine on the nightstand, but he had not been using it. Now, he had many health problems besides sleep apnea. Uh, it's really not possible to speculate that his forgetting to put on or failing to put on his CPAP mask, which is the treatment for sleep apnea, played a role in his death. Uh, but certainly, untreated sleep apnea is a risk factor for heart attack, high blood pressure, stroke, and other complications. Uh, So it is a serious illness, needs to be treated, needs to be taken seriously. Uh, So let's look at this article that focuses on the damage it can do to brain function. It turns out that um, it's also a very common problem, more common than you would think. One in 15 adults has moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea, And this is a disorder in which a person's breathing is frequently interrupted during sleep as many as 30 times per hour. Now, people with sleep apnea also often report problems with thinking, such as poor concentration, difficulty with memory and decision-making, depression, and stress. This frequent interruption in breathing during the night deprives the brain of needed oxygen. Now according to new research from the UCLA School of Nursing published in the Journal of Sleep Research, people with sleep apnea show significant changes in the levels of two important brain chemicals which could be a reason that many have symptoms that impact their day-to-day lives. Researchers looked at levels of these neurotransmitters, glutamate and GABA aminobutyric acid, known as GABA, in a brain region called the insula, which integrates signals from higher brain regions to regulate emotion, thinking, and physical functions, such as blood pressure and perspiration. They found that people with sleep apnea had decreased levels of GABA, and unusually high levels of glutamate. GABA is a chemical messenger that acts as an inhibitor in the brain, which can slow things down and help to keep people calm, like a brake pedal, as it were. GABA affects mood and helps make endorphins. Let me just say as a side note here, if you've seen supplements for sale in health food stores that purport to be GABA and that it's touted and promoted for help with anxiety or otherwise mental health and alertness, please do not waste your money. You cannot take exogenous GABA and expect it to get into the circulation of the brain and help you. I promise you that is a waste of your money, so don't buy it. All right, getting back to this research. Glutamate, in contrast to GABA, is not a break; it's more like an accelerator. When glutamate levels are high, the brain is working in a state of stress and consequently doesn't function as effectively. High levels of glutamate can also be toxic to brain cells. In previous studies, they found structural changes in the brain due to sleep apnea, but in this one, they actually found substantial differences in these two chemicals that influence how the brain is working. The researchers were taken aback by the differences in the GABA and glutamate levels. It is rare to have this size of difference in biological measures in research like this. They expected an increase in the glutamate because it is a chemical that causes damage in high doses and They've already seen brain damage from sleep apnea. What they were surprised to see was the drop in GABA. That made them realize there must be a reorganization of how the brain is working. The researchers feel the study's results are, in a way, encouraging. In contrast with damage, if something is working differently, they potentially feel it can be fixed. The link between sleep apnea and changes in the state of the brain is important news for clinicians. What comes with sleep apnea are these changes in the brain. So in addition to prescribing CPAP, that stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, a machine used to help an individual sleep easier, which is the gold standard treatment for sleep disturbance such as this, physicians now know to pay attention to helping their patients who have these other symptoms. Stress, concentration problems, memory loss, these are the things people want fixed, in addition to feeling just tired and run down and fatigued all day. In the future, researchers hope to look at whether treating sleep apnea whether that's using CPAP or other methods, return patients' brain chemicals back to normal levels. If not, they will turn to the question of what treatments could be more effective. They're also studying the impacts of mindfulness exercises to see if they can reduce glutamate levels by calming the brain. Now, that to me would be an interesting and fascinating study, and I hope to see that. What I mean is we already know that mindfulness meditation is very, very helpful for mental health, for for sleep, for lots of things. But to actually see if it would adjust the levels of glutamate and or GABA in the brain, that I think would be fascinating to gain some insights into the biological mechanisms of mindfulness meditation. And finally tonight, a plant compound found in spices and herbs increases brain connections Brazilian researchers demonstrated in the lab that apigenin, a substance found in parsley, thyme, chamomile, and red pepper, improves brain cell formation and strengthens the connections between them. Other experiments have already shown that substances from this chemical group known as flavonoids positively affect memory and learning. Flavonoids can enhance and preserve brain function. So the effectiveness of them for brain health isn't new, but this is the first direct result uh, using uh, one of the flavonoids on human cells. What they did was they applied this apigenin to human stem cells in a dish before they came brain cells. In effect, they wouldn't see without the substance. But then the, neuron, the neurons or brain cells that were formed were made stronger and had better, more sophisticated connections among themselves after being treated with this natural compound. This enhances the chances of good brain function, memory consolidation, and learning. And it was published in the Advances in Regenerative Biology. Now, the, the team thinks that the chemical could affect the development, maturation, and functioning of the nervous system, and uh, this could lead to advances in the treatment of schizophrenia, depression, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's disease. But... Uh, before you go running out and trying to find some, it's not quite ready for prime time. Until then, continue to eat foods high in flavonoids. They will be good for your brain health. And with that, we need to wrap it up quickly. Hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott.
3: Good night and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.